0: welcome my friends to the bob and brad podcast produced by bob and brad the two most famous physical therapists on the internet i am bob i am exactly one half of the bob brad team and today my guest host is
1: mike keenitz physical therapist assistant
0: and mike is going to help me interview rick olderman and we're going to talk about back pain knee and hip pain, shoulder pain, and foot and ankle pain. So stick around.
1: Because you're gonna realize everything's connected.
0: Right. Welcome to the program, Rick Olderman. So excited to have you
2: here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here.
0: All right, uh, let's get, we got a lot of questions. So could we start with your backstory?
2: Sure. I'll try and uh, edit it as much as possible. I graduated from PT school back in 1996. And my first job as a sports and orthopedic physical therapist was in a small town in southwestern Colorado called Cortez. And uh, what I learned very quickly was that the information that I had learned in PT school did not help me with difficult patients at that clinic. I could could help people with sprains, strains, post-surgical, all that kind of stuff. But if it came down to anything difficult like back pain, uh, neck pain, headaches, chronic shoulder, knee, anything right. like that, I was at a loss. And uh, and so what I, and I went into a deep depression because of that, because I had spent so much time right. and focus and I felt like this was my life's calling kind of thing. And I thought, I should be better than this. It shouldn't be this hard. And and I just continued to fail, and I took all these continuing education courses, and if everything didn't line up exactly how it presented in the course, it just didn't help me in the clinic. Sure. And so I, I, I got to this crossroads, Bob, where uh, you know, it was either I, I, I stopped being a PT because I was just a failure, or I tried to figure this out. And so I decided to try and figure it out because I spent a lot of money on my education up to yeah. this point a lot of time, Mm -hmm. and I I loved being a PT. When I was helping people, it just made me feel so good. So um, I remember back in PT school, someone had mentioned Dr. Shirley Saruman. And intuitively, I felt that our, our pain was due to how we're using our bodies. And so, and I remember Dr. Shirley Saruman seemed to teach something about this, movement impairment syndromes. And so I thought, you know what? I'm gonna look up Dr. Shirley Sarman's work. And I took all of her courses. I read her textbooks several times. And uh, that was the thing, it felt like I was coming home. Because that was the thing that finally made sense to me. It linked movement impairments with pain. And so uh, I worked with her information for a few years. I was doing great, but then Bob, as you know, the better you do the more difficult patients start knocking on your door right and so uh, the next the next level of patients weren't responding to that information as well really? and so then i started looking you know further and then i found doc uh, i found thomas myers work in fascia and he wrote a book called anatomy trains and uh, dr sarman identified three patterns of issues that affect back pain and thomas myers uh, found uh, fascial superhighways running through the body that almost exactly correspond to these three patterns that Dr. Sarman had found. Sure. And so he, what he helped me do, and, and these fascial highways link the head to the toe. So what he helped me see was I started experimenting with things further away from let's say back along that fascial highway to start solving back pain and that started working. And then uh, again, it happened that more difficult patients showed up at my door, mm-hmm. and these were like people who seemed stuck. Like I, I could change what was happening to their bodies, but it kept coming back again and again. And there was like there was this battery that was charging their body to hold tension in particular patterns. And that's when I discovered Dr. Thomas Hanna's work with Hanna Somatics, and his focus was neurological, neurologically based tension patterns based in our reflex patterns that we're born with. And so I studied that for three years, and he identified, guess what? Three identical patterns of dysfunction. The same three that Dr. Sarman had identified, and they linked to the Thomas Myers fascial superhighways. And I thought, this cannot be coincidence. All three of these different researchers are pointing in the same direction. So I spent the next few years integrating all of this information. And I was still working out of my home at this point, trying to figure all this out. And my policy was, if I don't get you better, you don't pay me. So I had to sure. i had to figure it out really quick. Uh, yeah. But then I, I thought, you know what, will this work in an orthopedic setting, though? So that's when I bought my physical therapy clinic to test my theories in my clinic, because I didn't think another therapist owner would allow me to experiment with their patient populations. I'm in this good. way. And. And so, within just a few years, our business quadrupled uh, oh. because people were getting better so fast and, and doctors were noticing. Right. And then the next step was, can I train another therapist to do this? And that's what I've been doing these past 10 years is training my other therapist to do this and they get the same results too. So it's not just me, it's really, it's really how the body works. And so I call it a systems approach to solving pain, as opposed to our component thinking that we're taught in PT school, and often a lot of CEC courses after PT, after PT school. So long answer to a short question. Sorry
0: about that. It all makes sense. Yeah. So
2: it does. It's very intuitive.
1: So you've written many books for our listeners that do not know. We have like five of them here, I believe. Could you describe the basic theme behind each book? Well, behind the books in general, I should say.
2: Yeah. So the, all the books are part of the Fixing You series. And really, the whole gist of the books is uh, it's it's not me fixing you. It's putting the power back into the patient's hands to fix themselves. So every book is a, integrates or incorporates the system's thinking. So in the first part of the book, I explain how everything works together. And then the second part of the book, I go into the exercises that will solve these systemic problems. Because frankly, you know, the way we're taught in school and and courses, if if people, that's good for a lot of things, but if people are having chronic pain, usually it's because no one's looking at them as a complete system. And so, that's what my books do. And even though I've broken them down into a back pain, hip and knee and then foot and shoulder and neck pain, I, I had to do that because if I wrote one big book for all of our whole system, no one would ever read that. Right. And it would be too, too overwhelming. So right. I had to break them down into smaller bits that people can absorb. And that's why there are six books in the series. Uh, and that's basically how all of them approach solving problems is from a systems standpoint which is integrating movement this neurological stuff and this fascist stuff all right and yeah. and simple exercises that solve these on many levels these problems
1: well they're great books really enjoy thank them. you thank so, you thank you do you know by chance which book is your most popular
2: well by far back pain Oh. Uh, and that was the one I rewrote back in 2015 to incorporate, so the other books haven't incorporated this somatics and fascial information that I've learned. Right. But uh, the 2015 rewrite, because there were such extensive changes I made in my thinking from 2010 to 2012 or 13, I thought I've got to rewrite this book. And so that is by far my best seller, not because it's a great great written book it's because so many people have chronic back pain and are looking for answers and sciatic pain or SI joint pain or whatever and they're not getting the answers and that's why these books sell well uh, even now
0: yeah t- 10 years later right 10 years yeah later?
2: Uh, well the, the yeah the, the neck pain book was published in 2009 I wrote that in 2007 and 8 all the other books were published in two thousand ten, and the back book was republished back in two thousand fifteen, and uh, and that was before I bought my clinic. So my right. clinic taught me that not only all of these things are, are, are occurring, but then because I had such a huge volume of people, all you know, you know, fifteen patients a day, and I so what I saw was oh, there are. This stuff is happening in patterns in people. So it, it's it's all following a pattern of dis- systemic dysfunction rather than just fixing this or that or that in, in the same person. It's about how they're moving and how they're using the body in patterns. And so that's when I realized I can't rewrite all of these books again. And that's when I created my sure. downloadable home programs based on what i discovered in my orthopedic clinic for the last 9 years or 10 years applying all this information so i've distilled it down even more to make it even easier for people to understand and follow
0: and where are those available rick
2: oh well those are available if if you go to fixingyoumethod.com gotcha all of my all of my downloadable programs are there um, oh. and so easy to find
1: All right, do you want to talk about back pain first? Sure. So we're going to get into our first video subject here. So the first book we'd like to talk about is fixing you back pain. So you kind of talked about a little bit in the first one, but who would benefit from this book?
2: Uh, Anyone with chronic back pain or sciatic pain or SI joint pain, anything like that. Yeah, Uh, because again, if you're having chronic pain, It's because the component thinking that has been applied to your pain has not worked. And you need a systemic solution, something about your whole body rather than just the back or just the pelvis.
1: Makes sense. So in the book, you have a large section discussing side bending problems. Can you describe what is happening during that and what problems occur?
2: Yeah, I I have my trusty skeleton here, so I'll show you. Great. Okay.
1: Awesome.
2: And, and this is this is one of my secret weapons that I used in my clinic, because if I could get patients to understand what was going on, yep. then they can, then they could buy, buy into them. what I was right. showing them. So, which is so important as you know, Bob and Mike. All right, right so uh, side bending problem. <clears throat> Here we're looking at the back of the spine. And uh, for those of you who are just listening, if you just imagine looking at, at, a, at a body from behind, all right? So one side of the pelvis is higher, all right, than the other in a side bending problem. And usually the same side of the rib cage is lower on that side. So if you're imagining this, imagine a lot of compression happening on this one side where the pelvis is higher and the rib cage is lower. This is basically a side bending problem, all right? And this causes lots of unilateral problems, such as, for instance, Uh, left back pain, or left sciatic pain, or left SI joint pain, or left facet joint pain, or left QL tightness, or all all things like that, any left versus a right side, it would be a side bending problem. Now, in medicine, what we're taught in neutral spine mechanics, if we have side bending, we have rotation to the opposite direction, right? Mm. And what I found, and this is what Dr. Sarman focuses on, is solving the rotation. But that would work temporarily. And if you if you look at a, a lot of our courses, identify, oh, you've got a rotated vertebra. But you have to ask yourself, why is that rotation happening? The driver of the rotation in the spine and the pelvis is from the side bending. Once I fix the side bending, all the rotation melts away. Goes away.
0: Very good. Um, what are some of the... Common initial causes of this.
2: Okay, so this is a great question. So this goes into the hand smacks. This is a withdrawal reflex pattern. Usually, we're getting away from pain somewhere in this leg of the side where the pelvis is higher. There's a problem in this lower extremity somewhere. All right, it could be an old problem. It could be a new problem. But your body has adapted. Just like if you're stepping on a sharp tack, you try and get that foot off of that. Well, to get your foot off of that, you contract those waist muscles, and it pulls your pelvis up, and then your ribcage goes down, right? That's that withdrawal reflex pattern. So what you're doing is you're withdrawing from some problem here. So I can easily correct the pelvis and ribcage. I can do it in 10 seconds, all right? But it's going to keep coming back if we don't solve the reason that is happening. And so that is what this whole system is about: is solving the why's behind all of these things happening. If you solve the why, it will never come back again. And so that's what I've been doing these last twenty-five years: is figuring out well what is causing this pattern to occur. And I've been teasing all of this out, both from a movement standpoint and from a habits standpoint.
0: Uh, how common is? Is this in your practice?
2: I'll tell you, every single person. Really? All right? Anyone with, uni- anyone with unilateral back pain, sciatic pain. And I'll tell you what, it, are, you're still practicing, right, Bob and Mike? Are you both still practicing? No,
1: I'm not. We're video making.
2: Uh, Mike, you're video making. Okay. Next time you see anyone with foot, knee, hip, pelvic pain, unilateral back pain, uh, SI joint pain, just get down on your knees from behind and measure the height of the pelvis. And you will find that often, the side that is, they're having pain on, that pelvis is higher.
0: Will be higher.
2: Because the body the body has to try to get off of that pain.
0: Sure.
2: And it does it by hiking every, everything up, all right, which creates the side bedding pattern. So if you have an old high school injury of an old sprained ankle or You know, you you had surgery on your knee and it was rehabbed okay, but you were young and you just wanted to get out of there and it wasn't completely corrected and it didn't go into correcting gait patterns and all this kind of stuff. Well, then, that all, your body remembers these things. And slowly your body adapts by slowly hiking that pelvis up until the point where that straw breaks the camel's back. And now, okay, I've been hiking this up enough and now uh, we're going to create some back pain and sciatic pain or SI joint pain or whatever for you and that's how it really happens.
1: Yeah, makes sense. So with the ribcage being pulled down, like you were showing, and the pelvis being pulled up, up. this can result in compressive forces in the back. So what is the problem with that? Like, why is it causing back pain, and how does it present to people if they're not sure?
2: Yeah, well, uh, I'll tell you what. um, Unfortunately, we can't share screens, because I have pictures of people with side bending problems. Sure. So the easiest way to do this is just get someone to take a picture of your back with your shirt off. Alright? And what you'll see is you'll see a bigger crease on one side of the back versus the other. And that is your signal that you have a side bending problem. Alright? Now you can have a side bending problem without the crease, but if you have a crease that's bigger on one side than the other, it's it means that it's been around a longer time.
0: Gotcha.
2: Right? If you just developed the side bending problem, well then you probably will not have developed the crease yet. All right? So that's a really easy way to know whether you have a side bending problem without anyone testing you or anything like that. And chances are that side bending problem, I'd say in 80 to 90% of the patients, the side bending problem is occurring on the same side as some pain that you're having currently or right. some old injury that you haven't addressed yet. Now, it, you can just look at this skeleton and you can see if I'm doing something like this, all of the vertebrae then become compressed on that Squish. side.
0: Right.
2: Right? So everything becomes squished. It squishes the nerve roots that exit the spine, that travel into and create the sciatic nerve. It causes all sorts of havoc in the facet joints, the discs between the vertebrae, all sorts of things. And so, That, I mean, you can just look at that and intuitively understand that, oh, gosh, if I solved, if I didn't compress the side of my spine, I bet you that would solve a lot of my pain. Lo and behold, it does. It's that easy. It's so easy to solve this. But everyone keeps looking at it as a rotation problem. Instead of a side pain problem. Or they're not even looking at this alignment issue. Most practitioners... Because I, I train you know all the new therapists that come into my clinic they have to learn my method, <laughs> and so uh, you know uh, older therapists aren't interested in learning something new like this but the younger ones are hungry for it especially right. if they've been out for a year Absolutely. or two because they know they know that what they've been taught isn't really working, isn't working in right. their in the clinic and and so they I I train them and uh, they. Get it, and no one's ever—almost all of them—no one's ever talked to them about this pattern of issues going on.
0: There was told to me
2: So, yeah. So uh, anyway, it's it's a big deal, <laughs> and very common.
1: So, what are some of the exercises you prescribe to your patients that have this issue?
2: Okay. Well, uh, this goes. So that's a good question, and and we to solve this, I'll tell you what. You can solve this in in about 10 footsteps. If you just lift up this arm and walk you will find that after you're done with about 10 steps this all will be corrected. But it will come back. It will come back because the exercises that will solve this have to do with what is at the root cause of this in the first place. Is it an ankle issue? Is it a knee issue? Is it a hip issue? What is that's what we need to solve. So, so often in my clinic, people come in with sciatic pain or back pain and they have MRIs that show disc herniations or whatever, right. you know, and and it's their hip. It's their hip. When we solve the hip joint, all their back pain goes away because now they don't have the side bending problem occurring because of the painful hip anymore or the dysfunction in the knee or the dysfunction in the foot. So, that's how you, I, I wish I could give a simple answer as to which exercise will solve this the arm up and while you're walking will temporarily solve it
0: Sure. but
2: if you want a permanent solve you have to solve the reason it's happening in the first place which is what all my books are about is solving the reasons these things are happening uh-huh. not just solving the thing itself
0: yeah,
1: yeah I think we got my- through all of those questions with your answers so I think we'll switch topics here great Now we're gonna move on to the book titled Fixing You, Hip and Knee Pain. Is it called hip and knee pain? It says both? Yeah. it does have both. So who in particular would benefit from this book?
2: Uh, Again, anyone with chronic hip or knee pain. (laughs) That makes
1: sense.
2: Because if if you're having chronic problems, again, it's not because you're broken, it's because The way people have been approaching you is from this component standpoint, which is our training as medical professionals. To look at things, oh, you've got a knee pain, so I'm gonna solve everything in the knee. But what about the foot and the hip, right? So, uh, what about the back? You know, all sorts of things. So, uh, what about how they're walking? What about how you're sitting? What about how you're standing? What about how you're exercising? Once you understand things from a system standpoint, All of those other questions make sense. And this is what I believe is missing in physical therapy, is that we're going more towards manipulations to solve a component problem. Right. But I I believe we're getting away from truly how the body works in this way. We're relying on something passive to solve pain. And if, if if you're listening out there and you have some idea that says, that and you believe that oh yeah I, I bet how I'm using it, my body has something to do with my pain then this systems approach is your solution because it's all about how you're using your body right so uh, yeah so that's who would benefit
1: <laughs> sounds good so in the book you say there are three common problems that happen with hip and knee pain you talk about poor performance tight muscles and poor movement habits would you mind elaborating on each of those
2: yes yeah, so uh, I'm gonna—I may geek out just a little bit here, but stick sure. with me. Uh, I'll try not to. So here's the thigh bone. All right, it starts at the at the pelvic at the hip joint here, and it goes to the knee knee joint. So the thigh bone is half of the knee joint. If we don't pay attention to how this thing is controlled, then we're missing half of the control of the knee joint. There's precious little in the knee joint that's actually controlling the knee joint muscularly. Okay? So, the big players up in the pelvis and the hip are the butt muscles. The gluteus maximus and the gluteus medius. The gluteus maximus is that big bulbous butt muscle, the bigger one that you see in, in, you know, especially runners have big butts, right? Right. And so, that thing has many different functions. It's like, I describe it like a hand muscle. It's a hand muscle that has lots of different uses and it controls this thigh bone in particular ways so making sure that thing is working properly is critical to controlling how the thigh bone is, is corrected now the gluteus medius is smaller it has a more precise type of function for the hip and so that has a lesser role in controlling the femur but it does okay so that's the upper half of the knee
0: gotcha.
2: you can is which is controlled from the from the hip and pelvis And so the glutes are the big powerhouses. Those are the movers and shakers of uh, of controlling this. But you can do all the strengthening in the world. And if you're not walking correctly to use the glutes, because that's their whole purpose, is to help us walk. If you're not changing how you're walking to turn on the butt muscles, then all the strengthening or stretching or whatever you're doing is gonna be for naught because you're not applying it to how you're using your body. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
2: And, and 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 gait is the biggest thing. I mean, you know, it's the thing that we do most of. And if we're not walking correctly, then that is actually turning off these muscles. All right? You could do a thousand lunges, squats, deadlifts, whatever you want to do. But if you're not walking and using it, what's the purpose? It's not right. doing anything. So, so that's the upper half of the knee joint. The lower half is then controlled by the foot, calf, and soleus muscles. So if you have tight, and and the calf muscles uh, attach above the knee joint here, okay? So if your calf muscles are, usually the problem with calves are are that they're too tight. And so what they're doing is pulling the knee back into a locked position. Uh, And they're not allowing the ankle to move the way it should move. And so you have to solve the calf and soleus tightness and function issue for the other half of the knee joint. Now, the the third thing, there's only one muscle in the knee that controls the knee joint, the popliteus muscle. And that runs from the inside of the knee to to the outside like this, okay? And it crosses the knee joint in a diagonal. Well, if you look at the architecture of the way the knee is built, You see how one uh, lobe is angled differently than the other. So rotation is built into the knee joint, all right? It rotates with all movement. The popliteus, because it runs from the inside to the outside and crosses the knee joint, helps control that rotation. So when you have knee pain, what is often happening is that the popliteus is in spasm and it's locking the knee into the, the rotated position. And so by simply massaging the popliteus muscle, it unlocks the knee and almost all knee pain will go away almost immediately. I had a a woman come in with a tibial plateau fracture, which is a fracture of the top of the lower leg bone here. She came in with a tibial plateau fracture in incredible pain. All I did was massage her popliteus. She walked out with probably 95% less pain. I didn't change the fracture. I changed the stresses that were acting on the fracture. And that's what a systems approach does to think for for the body. Is that
0: papal painful?
2: Oh, yeah. It'll be painful because, A, it's a a tiny deep muscle. Right. All right? So when you massage it, you can't attack. (laughs) You've got to be gentle and kind of sneak your way in and give it some love instead of attacking it. Right. Because uh, people will jump off your table uh, sure. when you touch this thing. And you'll find any, any of you out there who have knee pain or practitioners listening who are treating people with stubborn knee pain, even post-surgical, especially post-surgical. I had a guy who had a, a ACL, a whole reconstruction of his knee, meniscus, ACL, everything. And he could not uh, straighten or bend his knee. He was in so much pain after surgery. All I did our first session was massage his popliteus muscle. He gained 20 degrees of knee flexion right there and went into full knee extension. And it's because that little tiny muscle is locking the knee into a rotated position and causing all sorts of havoc in there. But again, the question has to be, but why is the popliteus in spasm? That's where the gait pattern comes in. That's where the calf soleus and hip muscles come in because things aren't working here correctly. And that's why this little guy is doing too much and go, going into spasm.
0: Sure. This is fascinating.
1: So if poor walking mechanics is the major cause of your glute max not firing properly, what do you recommend the people to fix their gait? I know we've looked into more like minimal or less supportive shoes to help with that, but what's your opinion on it?
2: Yeah, uh, uh, shoe, you know, orthotics and shoe wear are the last things I look at. So really Uh, the, the big problem that almost everyone is running into, no pun intended, uh, (laughs) with gait issues is that, uh, their knees are locking, all right. And what is happening is that because our shoe wear typically has a thick sole, especially the heel portion, you look at your shoes, you'll see the heel portion is super thick, right? right? Well, Well, that allows us, that allows us to strike that heel stronger than we would naturally do that. And what that does is it allows us to put that foot further out in front of us than it needs to be because we can hit that heel as hard as we possibly want to because we have all that padding right there. If you just compare how you walk without your shoes on to how Mm -hmm. you walk with your shoes on, you'll notice that you walk slightly differently. And it's because you can't get away with striking that heel so hard when you're walking without those shoes on that is closer to how you should be walking and what you'll the biggest difference that you'll see there is that when you're walking without your shoes on you'll notice that your knee unlocks is more prone to unlock with your shoes on your knee is more prone to lock
0: makes sense
2: and that's what's turning off the butt muscles that's what's spasming the popliteus muscle so
0: how do you get the glute muscles to fire?
2: Yeah, so that, that takes a little bit of uh, guidance on my part, uh, but uh, in my programs, I teach people how to do this. So the, the, the simplest way is, so, well, first of all, you have to prove to yourself that your glutes aren't working. Right. So the test I would give to your listeners is, is this, put your fingers on your butt muscles. Pinch them together and you'll feel that there's your maximum contraction. All right. And you should feel it nice and firm and hard when you pinch them together like that. Keep your fingers there. Now relax completely your butt muscles and they should feel flabby again. Now keep your fingers on both butt muscles while you walk, you know, five or 10 steps and you'll notice, gosh, they're not really firing. Right. That's your test to say, to show you that the butt is not working when you're walking, which is when it's needed the most. I don't know. Have you guys ever uh, like turned around and immediately run into a doorway or a table or something like that that you didn't realize was right there? Sure. Uh, I do that periodically, yeah. <laughs> and you know what always amazes me is the amount of force that my body has generated with just a half of a step.
0: Sure.
2: Just a half step, and it's like I just got hit by a linebacker, right? And so that glute is helping control all of that force that you're generating in your walking. And so if it is not turning on with walking all that force is being translated into smaller tissues and joints and that's where the breakdown is happening. So to solve that an easy way would be uh, to, if you get up on your tippy toes and you keep your hands on your butt muscles and you walk around on your tippy toes You'll notice that you start to feel some contraction in your butt muscle naturally. Gosh. You should never turn on your butt. Con- you should never turn it on consciously, because what happens when you see a squirrel? Then your butt turns off. What we want to do is fix your walking pattern so it never turns off. No matter if you're seeing a squirrel running from a car or whatever you're noticing during your walk, if you fix your walk, you can think about all sorts of other things other than contracting your butt. So if you walk around on your tippy toes, you'll notice that your butt now is starting to turn on. Why? Because you'll notice that your body is aligned differently over your foot at foot strike when you're doing this. And so what you do is you slowly lower your heels back down to introduce the heels back into striking, and you'll notice that your butt continues to turn on.
0: Oh, that's And crazy. the reason it's
2: turning on, that... The, re, the reason it's continuing to turn on It's because it's it's sticking with that new gait pattern that you just taught it with the tiptoe walking. It's not so much the foot strike pattern. It's about your whole body moving over the foot at foot strike.
0: Gotcha.
1: So in your book, you also talk about the big time hip flexors, in your opinion, are the tensor fasciae the sartorius, and the rectus femoris. Why do you say those versus like what Bob and I probably learned in school was your iliopsoas?
2: Well, one of the things is because whenever I focus on the iliopsoas, I never saw results in my patients.
1: Sure.
2: Right?
0: That makes sense. Uh,
2: and, so, and so look at the lever arm. Look at the lever arm of the sartorius, the rectus, and the tensor fasciae Huge lever arms acting on the, uh, to flex that hip right? Enormous muscles, huge bulk. Look at the iliopsoas. It's just barely crossing the yep. hip joint yep. and, it, and it's tiny and, it, and it's very close to the hip joint itself. Look at the, the, all those other muscles by virtue of the fact that they start at the ASIS on the pelvis are much further away from the joint. So they have tremendous hip flexion leverage to flex that hip. The iliopsoas is just a helper. The problem is in the big guys not that little tiny guy that little tiny guy may be irritated but it may be irritated for different reasons then and that irritation may not directly be impacting the whatever you're trying to solve by addressing the, the psoas well I was going to say a lot of this approach to understanding how we work as a system involves rethinking the um, The significance of our anatomy, it's not enough to know that the hip iliopsoas starts at your, you know, L1 through 5 and then inserts into the top of the hip bone. Right. And it's not enough to know that we have these other hip flexors here. You have to understand the meaning and the significance of the architecture of our bodies. And that's what I've been rethinking for these last 20 years and that's how I've put all this stuff together right? Oh, you know yeah. all of these things, all of this anatomical stuff. You know this. But we're taught to think about it in a different way than what is, could be more useful in our clinical experience.
1: Do you even want me to ask this last question? No, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I think right. we'll switch subjects. Well, it's that like was, one uh, exercise okay. for knee pain, but we realize it's a whole systematic thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> All it's right. a whole
2: system and ultimately, I'll tell you, no one gets out of our clinic. If you have come in with back, sciatic, SI, hip, pelvic, uh, knee, foot, no one, no one gets, I'm sorry. Can you guys hear that dinging? Yep. I'm sorry sorry no. about that. No. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll, but, but no one comes, no one leaves our clinic with any of those diagnoses without learning how to walk again better because walking is where it all that's where the rubber hits the road that's how we're supposed to be using our bodies if you so ultimately whatever you do you have to fix your walking pattern or else it will keep breaking down your body
0: i'm a i'm a big believer i i had um hamstring problems and um, anterior hip pain and all went away with uh adjusting my walking
2: Yes, yeah. We, we can go deeper into hip issues and hamstring issues if you want, but because I have other theories on, on that kind of stuff. But wherever you guys want to go with things is fine with me.
0: Well, we'll skip on to the next one. Huh?
1: Well, we'll go on to uh, shoulders. So now we're going to switch subjects and talk about fixing you shoulder and elbow pain. So to fix many shoulder and elbow problems, you often begin with the shoulder blade. Can you discuss this and explain how posture can affect this?
2: Yes, so, so let's first talk about the shoulder blade. And I'll, I'll use my trusty skeleton again. All right, again, going back to the architecture of our bodies. Look at the architecture of this shoulder blade. What, there's only one other bone in the body that has a similar architecture. Our pelvic bone. All right, It's a broad, flat bone. It has a, a, a socket on it, just like the hip bone. The pelvis is the center of function for our lower body mechanics. The shoulder blade is the center of function for our upper body system. All right, And this is why we have to look at the shoulder blade to understand more chronic problems, all right? So, there are, fortunately, Dr. Saruman has worked out the rules to how the shoulder blade should be working. And there are some landmarks that we look at. One is that this part of the acromion should be resting at thoracic level two. This border here should be resting three inches from the spine. I don't care if you're five feet tall or seven feet tall, all right? Those are the resting landmarks. If we find a problem with either of those, and we often do, it means for sure that, because the whole purpose of the shoulder blade is to assist the arm in movement. So if we find a problem with it just resting, well, we know then for sure we're gonna find problems with how it's being used. So when the arm is raising up overhead, with the shoulder blade, now this guy goes into action. All right? so. The landmarks that should be happening here are the acromion should be moving up to cervical level seven, the inferior angle, the bottom, you know, triangle point of that shoulder blade should be coming out to the midpoint of the thorax, and this angle should be reaching 60 degrees, because 180 degrees is normal overhead motion, 60 degrees of that comes from the shoulder blade, 120 of that comes from the from the shoulder joint itself. All right. So so then we once we measure this, we see oh gosh, most people that I have who have chronic neck, headaches, shoulder issues, elbow issues, will find that not only are the resting landmarks off, but the movement landmarks are off too. So then we start to solve those things. We, we're we laying the groundwork for success elsewhere because it is the foundation, just like the pelvis.
1: Makes sense. So in the book, you talk about with women in general there are two things that can depress their shoulders would you mind elaborating on that
2: yeah so shoulder depression means that the shoulder blades are typically resting too low alright and so the reason this is really important is not only for shoulder mechanics because it, it will screw up the movement mechanics but there are really important muscles that attach from the shoulder blade into the neck bones and the base of the skull. The big one is the trapezius. Again, it's like the gluteus. It's like this big hand muscle that has all sorts of function. It starts at the base of the skull, comes all the way down here, and inserts in the shoulder blade. It's massive. And we divided it into an upper, mid, and lower trapezius uh, portions because it's so big and has so many jobs. But deep to that big guy, is this little levator scapula muscle that starts at the very corner of the shoulder blade here and inserts into C1 through four, sometimes five. Okay? So again, just like everywhere else in the body, if the big guy isn't doing its job, the little guy has to take up the slack and do more. And that's when we have shoulder, neck pain, headaches, all that kind of stuff. And you'll see everyone say, oh, it hurts right here. Oh gosh, I have a knot right here. They're not pointing at the trapezius they're pointing at the levator scapula deep to it, alright? So, uh, that is, but, so when we talk about women having typically depressed shoulder blades, what's Mm -hmm. happening is that they are sitting too low, which is then causing the levator scapula to work even harder to try, because it's levator means to elevate, right? So its job Mm -hmm. is to elevate. Well, the scapula is sitting too low, so now it's being turned on excessively, not only is it carrying the load, doing the job of the trapezius, but now you've stretched it out while it's under load, and it's saying, "No, moss, I can't do this anymore." All right. So that's and so that's you know scapular depression in a nutshell. Why it's affecting neck pain, headaches, and shoulder issues, and women in particular have this because uh, one of the things that drags the shoulder blades down is the chest and breast size. So if a lot of women have uh, wear their bras and their bra strap is out, outside, on the outside of the shoulder blade. Well, that, depending on how large the breast is, that's like holding a, a five pound weight in your hand all day long, right? And gradually your shoulder's gonna get tired, right? Well, when you have a bra strap that's resting out here and I see so many, uh, you've probably, you guys have probably seen this in the clinic too, when you move a bra strap, you see this big divot in the shoulder Right, Absolutely. that tells you how much that that thing is dragging down the whole system. So instead of having it out here where it's a long lever arm, wouldn't it make sense to put it here instead, where now it's off of the shoulder blade, and now the connections from the shoulder blade to the neck are unloaded.
1: If someone has tight internal rotator muscles, you know it brings their posture forward. How does this affect negatively in your rotor uh, rotator cuff?
2: Yeah. So, uh, again, the, all of, it, it depends on how the scapula is resting and how the function of the scapula is. Sure. Again, that is, the, that, is, that is the foundation of shoulder movement. Then when we get into the shoulder internal rotators, that's going to exacerbate. Because if you look, one of the big ones is the chest, right? So if you look at the fibers of the chest, a lot of them are moving downward some are moving across, a lot of them are, are like this. So they are contributing to scapular depression. All right, so when you, not only are they attaching to the arm bone and contributing to you know, the arm being internally rotated, and internal rotation in almost any joint in the body increases compression and pain, but they are also contributing by virtue of the fact of their orientation, they are pulling everything down too. So, yes, stretching the chest muscles will help release that internal rotation of the arm bone and thereby the internal rotation and the compression. But what it's also going to do is relieve some of that scapular depression as well. Did that answer your question, Mike? Yeah. Absolutely.
1: So to correct, say, shoulder blade issues, what are some of your favorite exercises you give people?
2: Well, uh, we have to understand the, the the problem with the shoulder blade. So, if we're just looking at scapular depression, uh, we're looking. We need to stretch the scapular depressors, right? One of those are the chest muscles that we just talked about. So you stretch those guys out. The latissimus dorsi is another one. It starts oh. down here at the pelvis and it attaches. It hooks onto that scapula just a little bit and then into the arm, right? So that's another scapular depression, just depressor. So, but really, uh, and then, you know, one of the exercises that we do, and this is a common yoga one, what's it called? When you're on your hands and knees and then you sit back on your heels and just let your hands stay there, it's like a a prayer kind of motion. I I don't know. Is that called a prayer stretch? Okay, so prayer stretch. What you'll notice, if you're doing that prayer stretch, if you keep your hands where they are, and then you sit back, that's gonna pull the arms up overhead. And most people with tight scapular depressors will feel a stretch here, right? So that's stretching a lot of the muscles that are pulling the scapula down and causing it not to move the way it should, all right? Now, okay. Bob, you, you and Brad did a really really interesting, I saw your you did a clip on a doctor who wrote a book about hanging to solve right. shoulder problems.
0: Dr. Hirsch.
2: Remember that one? Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Hirsch. So, uh, yeah. So, so what that's doing, it's just like what I just showed you. If you hang,
0: yeah, makes sense. If
2: I get that arm up, well, I, if <laughs> you hang, what you're doing is you're stretching all of the muscles that are pulling the scapula down, sure. and what it's doing is it's restoring the upward rotation of the shoulder blade that's why it's contributing, that's why it's helping shoulders, all right? But, and I I do have some hanging exercises I give my patients. However, people with chronic pain, hanging is way too aggressive for them. So this all fours rocking stretch is a nicer, gentler way of of starting as opposed to just hanging on the thing because if you've got chronic pain, all of those tissues are irritated. But that's what the hanging is doing, is it's solving one or two of the scapular landmarks, allowing the scapular to, because if it upwardly rotates, what we're doing is moving that the roof of the shoulder blade out of the way so that the arm bone can come up better. Right? So that's what that is doing. Okay. Makes sense. Hopefully that makes sense.
0: Yeah.
2: All right. And, and so that's what I'm hoping, you know, all of this information, and this is what all my therapists say, and my patients say too, it's just like, gosh, this makes so much sense. Why isn't anyone else doing this? And that's the thing is it's, it's because of how we've been trained right. as medical professionals because, because the, the, the gold standard is, oh, everything has to be evidence-based. So in order to generate evidence about a shoulder, we have to look at ever smaller things, Who we can't have 20 different things that yeah. we're measuring in a shoulder study we can only measure one thing. And so you can't and so you can't research systems. And that's why it's taking me so long to put all this together is because there's not research there's bits and pieces all over right. the place but you have to integrate this. And so when people understand patients and therapists alike, when they understand how things work together, the significance of the architecture and everyone's just like oh it makes so much intuitive sense uh that's that's my greatest compliment is that yes it does <laughs> because <laughs> that's how the body works right. <laughs> so anyway so um my little soapbox R- there <laughs>
0: rick when you have people do these exercises how long before they might get some relief
2: my standard in the clinic is I expect immediate relief really right same then and there? there really yeah not only the same day within minutes because really? I yeah the way I do everything is I do a test retest oh you've got back pain show me the situation that you're doing your back pain in okay I think this is causing your back pain let's fix this thing now do that test again oh that feels a lot better awesome. okay this is what you're going to do at home it's so immediate I typically expect Typically, I expect at least a 50% reduction in pain after our first visit because we've tested it in the evaluation. We know what's going to solve their issues. And also, because I've seen so much volume of patients, I can identify the pattern of problems almost immediately by having them, just by watching them walk to my table. So once you you get good at this stuff, you you don't have to do a thousand orthopedic tests. It's so simple. It's so simple. Uh, a- anyway, I-, I expect immediate results.
0: So you better name your clinic, Rick, because people are going to want to come to it.
2: A- oh, well, I, this is the thing, Bob. I sold my clinic back in April. Oh, you did? Oh, no. I I, 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 I. Well, here's the deal. I, you heard that I just, couldn't deal, insur- yeah, I <laughs> yeah, I just couldn't deal with,
0: with the insurance. Yeah, I understand. I just couldn't
2: deal with it. With the insurance I'm, anymore. It was just right there with you. hurdle that, after hurdle. It was yeah. getting
0: worse and worse. And, me. I
2: mean, our yeah, our contracts were 15 years old. I, I called up Blue Cross. I called up Cigna. I called up United Health. All the biggies. Hey, can we renegotiate our contracts? We haven't had a pay increase in 15 years. Right. Absolutely not. Right. We don't even want to talk to you. Uh, okay. Well, therapist salaries are going up. All expenses right. are going up. I was and there, and I was what am right I supposed to do? You. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so I just I just finally just got out. Understood. So my focus Yeah, my focus is now instead of a little brick and mortar's clinic, and this is why I developed all these home programs is because you don't need to go into a clinic to solve these things. If you just have the right information, you can solve it yourself. It's what the whole point of my books were about, and it's the whole point of my downloadable programs is that and I the downloadable programs are so much more succinct. I mean, I've really just given you like the minimum to solve everything sure. and, and so that's my, my goal is to make the world my clinic as opposed to just my little brick and mortar uh, business thing.
0: Uh Could you name your website again?
2: Yeah, it's uh, fixingyoumethod.com is where you'll find all of my downloadable home programs. Right, And then uh, if you type in fixingyou, all one word. You'll get a twenty percent discount on your purchase. Oh, great! Uh, yeah, and then uh, if you're a if you're a practitioner out there who wants to learn this approach to solving pain, I have another website called healpatientsfaster.com, and there I've created an online web uh, training program, uh, and it it gives thirty CEU credits. I couldn't believe they gave me thirty CEUs. Oh, wow! Uh, and, and yeah, it's huge. So 30 CEU credits for just about all states in the country. Um, and then, um, and that's where you'll learn all of these mechanics and how to look and solve pain using a system standpoint. If you, if you want to look at my blog and other things, if you go to RickOlderman.com, that also has all of these links uh, and my blog, and I've got a book that's I'm going to be publishing next year. Uh, and I have some excerpts from that book, some chapters there, if you want to read those. Um, yeah, so, awesome. And some f- other, free, uh, other free stuff that you can get if you want.
1: So the next book we're going to discuss is Fixing You Foot and Ankle Pain. So probably you have the same question every time. Who would benefit from this book the most? I know. Well,
2: uh, by now you should probably know my answer. Yes, anyone anyone who has not responded to traditional physical therapy or chiropractic or whatever approaches would benefit from this book.
0: Gotcha.
1: So according to your book we have six muscles that move or help move the foot into dorsiflexion so that means going up for people that are listening but we have 14 muscles that help your foot move into plantar flexion so what does that mean to you
2: yeah so what does that mean we have uh, double the amount of muscles right and they're so much bigger that pushes into plantar flexion or you know, those are the muscles that allow us to go up on our tippy toes. So the calf muscles, the soleus, and all those other guys, right? So we have double those amount of muscles. So if something goes wrong with those muscles, they are going to have a double impact on the foot and ankle than the muscles that are pulling us up. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: Okay, so they have, because we have twice the anatomy devoted to that motion, that motion must be pretty important in our bodies. And it turns out it is. And so what happens is, typically, to make it really simple, when we're walking, our body has to pass over the foot during foot strike. When that foot is on the ground, our body has to be able to come over it. Does that make sense?
0: Yes.
2: Right? All right, so the ankle needs to be able to bend for that to happen. If those 14 muscles are too tight, they're gonna constrict your body's ability to come over that foot during walking. And your body will start to compensate. So if you remember when I talked back earlier about the force that our bodies generate, right? You run, you turn around, you don't know something's there, you run into it, it's like you're hit by a linebacker, all right? So now you've got all of this force being directed through the foot and ankle. You've got a tight calf, soleus, and perhaps other muscles down there. And they're restricting that force You're trying to go forward and they're saying no. So where does that force thing go? It's got to go somewhere, right, for you to move forward. So there are 26 joints in the foot, right? So that force has two options at this point. One, it's going to be transmitted into the bottom of the foot and cause excessive compression and flattening of the arch. Or two, the foot's going to say, nope, you're not going to find a home here. I'm going to push you back up to the knee. And so what it's going to do is going to throw everything back up to the knee, so then the knee moves into high, that hyperextension and irritates the popliteus muscle, turns off the gluteal muscles, and starts to, to break down and create that side bending problem. All right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the significance of that architecture of the lower body, is that when something is wrong there, it has twice the impact of the dorsiflexors on our function. Make and sense. the result of, that, result of that is the, the, the easiest way for, for that force to disperse in our body is frankly to go through those joints in our foot. Because the foot is designed to flatten a little bit and come up again during walking. It goes down, the arch does, goes down and comes up, right? But when you now add this excessive force onto it, it goes down and it stays down. And that's when we develop plantar fasciitis, Heel spurs, Morton's neuromas, you know, bunions, all sorts Ah, of problems in the foot. Yeah, right? Because the forces are unrelenting acting on those tiny little joints in our foot.
1: So in the book, you have the five biggest contributors of foot pain. So we're going to kind of break down each one, and if you wouldn't mind elaborating on each topic I ask. So, the first one you talk about is foot strike or your walking pattern. So, how does that cause foot pain for some people?
2: Yeah, so we've talked about that a little bit and, right, and, and exactly. just now, as a matter of fact. So, if, right. if your body, if, you're, if, you're, if your calf is tight and your ankle is not able to bend well, all right, that force is going to be distributed through the foot and cause all of these types of problems. However, if you're also not walking correctly on top of that, it's gonna cause those problems that tightness in your calf to become magnified alright and cause even more problems if you're walking correctly with soft knees and things like that what that's gonna do is naturally lengthen the calf and soleus complex in the, in the lower body system and those are the main drivers of foot issues if you can lengthen those because in order to, to soften your knee it has to travel forward towards the toes a little bit, all right? Which means that the calf and soleus has to lengthen a little bit. So if you walk using that new, instead of locking the knee back, if you walk keeping a softer knee, now you're walking with lengthening happening in the calf and soleus as opposed to shortening happening in the calf and soleus. And it creates a huge deal.
0: Will will it help to um, walk with a shorter gait pattern?
2: Initially, Bob, that's what most people need to do because Mm -hmm. what's going on is most people have learned to walk with their foot way out in front of them. And in order for their body to catch catch up to that foot, the opposite side hip joint and pelvis don't know how to do that to allow that big motion to occur yet. So they need to start with smaller steps in order to start training the opposite leg to allow that opening to occur. Does that make sense? Yes. Makes sense. So as it usually takes, it usually takes, uh, it usually takes a, a few days, and then once you start seeing, oh yeah, okay, that's getting a lot easier for me. My body can travel. I mean, you know, over my foot even with long strides now. Then you've got it. But it usually takes between one and three days for most people.
0: Gotcha.
1: So in the book, you also mention how the shape of your foot, in terms of how much pronation or supination you have, how does that affect people's foot pain?
2: Yeah, so you know pronation. So our primary stabilizers in our bodies are our ligaments. All right, they hold all of our joints together and all that kind of stuff. So when our we have a pronating foot, which means that it's flat, it means that your ligaments aren't doing the job that they're supposed to because they're too loose. Well, we can't. That's often a genetic thing. We can't train your ligaments to respond you know, faster and be stronger, right? Because they don't have a contractile component to them. It's a passive structure, all right? And I describe ligaments like, if you saw an accident outside your window and that ambulance comes immediately, that's your ligament addressing the accident. Then two weeks later when a doctor comes by and says, hey, was there a problem here? That's your muscles responding to the problem. So the ligaments are your first responders. And if they're compromised, you've lost that initial stabilization system, and the muscles cannot solve the problem fast enough for you know, when you don't have the ligament stability there. So with flat feet, what's going on is, now you've got this, I just kind of describe it as a loose bag of potatoes, uh, that the, everything is just kind of collapsing a little bit too much, and you don't have the spring coming back again. Well, uh, again, uh, there's tremendous, there's up to, up to, well when we're running, we have up to five times our body weight passing through the foot and ankle with each step. With walking I think it's around two or three. So if you multiply your weight times two or three with each step and your ligament structure isn't there to stabilize things, now you've got all that poundage just pounding on, you know, other structures in your foot. And this is what leads to a lot of foot and ankle pain. But a lot of that is occurring because the whole gait pattern is wrong and the foot isn't and nothing else is controlling your body when you're walking incorrectly. So you have no support from your glutes, from your quads, from your calves, from anything else to, to offload those lax ligaments in your foot. That's why foot and ankle flatness is a problem. It's a bigger problem if your gait isn't right too. Sure.
1: So do you wanna talk about how the shape of your thigh bones uh, can affect your feet and maybe cause pain?
2: Oh, that is such a great question. (laughs) All right, so I'm gonna have to use my skeleton for that one. I love that you asked that, Mike, so this is a really important concept. All right, so this is our thigh bone, all right, and uh, our thigh bones are all built differently, all right, between person to person. There's something called femoral, this is the femur, Retroversion, where the thigh bone is twisted outward slightly. And there are thigh bones that are have femoral antiversion, which is a thigh bone that's twisted inward slightly. Okay? Typically, females are more prone to have antiversion or internal rotation of that thigh bone. Men are more prone to have thigh bone external rotation. Alright? What matters with this is that we have to have if, if you have an antiverted femur, and knowing that internal rotation really causes more compression and irritation to joints, then you have to control that thigh bone more if you have an antiverted thigh femur. And so, if you have an antiverted femur, or one that's rotated in, then we double down on our gluteal strengthening and gait correction, to really make sure that that thing is not just doing this with each step, right? And if you go to a mall and you watch people's walk, you'll see knees going in like this, and I'm just like, oh, that guy, that person is just breaking down their whole body. Why? So once you learn to cor- walk correctly, that will now be like this, and it will be more controlled, right? So what ha- the how that affects the foot is this. When the thigh bone rotates in, and especially if it's uncontrolled, that will happen very quickly, and then the knee is rotating in. And then what happens especially is that the then the foot is rotating in, too, and pronating and flattening more. So if you can control the thigh bone rotation so it's not rotating in nearly as much, then, by extension, you're controlling the amount of flatness that's occurring through the foot. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay, now, for more retroversion. All right, so I have a lot of, some people who come in and say, oh, I've got supinated feet. Right? And that means a foot that arch that's too high and so, but they don't have supinated feet, they've got a retroverted femur. What's going on is that when the thigh bone rotates out, it wants to pull everything out with it. And if your foot is pointed, you can do this just standing up, if you kind of stand with your feet pointed forward and then you squeeze your butt and feel your thigh bones rotate out, you'll feel that your arch lifts off the floor, right? It looks like it's supinated, or, or you have a high arch. You don't have a high arch, naturally, though. The, the high arch is coming because uh, you are not aligning your foot position with the shape of your femur. People with retroverted femurs need to point their feet out slightly. All right, And when you point uh-huh. your feet out, you'll notice that there is significant tension that reduces throughout the whole lower body chain including now your foot isn't supinated any longer. All right? It gets to move right. through the normal way it's supposed to. Now, why aren't people doing this? Because invariably, when I say, hey, you need to point those toes out just a little bit because you've got retroverted femurs, people say, you mean I have to walk like a duck? So what we've done is we've socialized this idea that all feet should be pointed forward. Right. And they shouldn't because we're not all built the same. And this is also evidenced when you see uh, a guy sitting down and they've got that man spread, right? The knees are way apart.
1: You can't see my legs, but that's what I'm doing.
2: (laughs) Exactly, because that's due to retroverted femurs. The thigh bone is is rotated outward. If you put those knees together, Mike, go ahead and put your knees together.
1: Oh, it's uncomfortable. that takes a
2: significant amount of effort. Right. right, it takes a lot of effort. So in order to do that, you're then overly activating all of the adductors of your leg, which creates a whole nother set of problems. Okay, so better to to understand that. Oh, I've got retroverted femurs. I'm allowed to walk with my feet out, and I'll tell you that I saw the uh, an elite cyclist knee pain. He had a big race coming up with just that one solution. I didn't give him any exercises. No. Sure. I said look, rotate your cleats out three degrees, let your knee fall away from your bike frame about a half more inch than you're used to. And he was to the point where he couldn't even ride three miles. That weekend he went out, ran, rode 50 miles. Wow. No pain at all. All because we understood the significance of the shape of his thigh bone. On his knee, foot, whatever. Okay? This is why solutions appear very simple when you understand things from a system's standpoint because you can make one small change but it's like a ripple effect throughout the whole body because that's how we're built to work
1: so if someone say like me wanted to run which i do sometimes and i am more retroversion i don't run in a retroverted state i run straight feet i mean i have pretty flat shoes but should I try to retro or turn out my toes?
2: Yep, turn out the toes. Just try a degree or two. A tiny. How far do you run typically, Mike?
1: Well, I just did two marathons, so.
2: <laughs> okay, so <laughs> so long distance. Okay, yeah. So this is a this is a really good point. Do we want to make a two-degree difference in your foot rotation when you're running twenty-six miles right off the bat? No. No. Because your body hasn't adapted to that change so what i would do is start with that recommendation for short runs and even even like maybe every half mile turn the feet out a little bit see how that feels and then go back to your foot turning in and start experimenting with what degree of turning out feels best for your legs because your degree of retroversion won't be the same as my degree of retroversion right it won't be the same as bob's or you know, anyone else's. So you've got to figure out that perfect angle of your foot on your own. But giving you the permission to turn that foot out and experiment with that will probably change your life in terms of your running uh, path. Because when the foot gets to rotate out, guess what gets in guess what gets activated better?
1: Uh, the glutes. Glute max. Yeah. Because
2: my because they are they are because they are external rotators of the lower body now you're externally rotating that leg it's biasing the glute maximus to turn on now so you get to recruit more of that because of that change
1: yeah with the distance you'll running, find more, I more power with keeping my foot straight my glute meads get the most sore and one of them was actually pretty problematic this last training route and i've been trying to figure out why and i'm assuming that's why now i bet you're right
2: it's if it if it's not the only reason, it's probably one of the big reasons.
1: Yeah.
0: So I saw this in your book, and I had my daughter do it, and it took away her foot pain.
2: Great she was walking. Is, it Isn't it, it so, so simple, Bob? You yeah. had you had her to it's turn so her toes now. Yep. Oh,
0: she
1: naturally turns out her toes. Yeah, I understood that with like trying to fix my squatting mechanics. She was so. trying
0: to walk with her feet straight.
1: Yeah. Huh. Well, what to tell Brad? Because you always make fun of him for that. I know. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> no, we don't have to tell Brad. He, he <laughs> That's Um, So, I, interestingly, I, I, I have my own little podcast, not nearly like your guys's. I just started it, and I interviewed Dr. Shirley Sarman on there. And wow, one of the comments you. that she made, uh, what she, one of the comments that she made was that uh, more and more females are developing for more retroversion. Really? And I thought that was a really interesting comment so what that does either we're measuring it more and and, and finding a level of retroversion that we didn't know existed prior to that right or the, the retroversion is in part consequence of training strategies because a oh, lot more women are becoming uh, entering athletics and becoming stronger and stronger you know and, and pushing right. themselves really hard. And that may have some adaptive influence on the degree of retroversion and interversion as well. So that would be an interesting study for those of you who want to do research.
1: Sure. I guess the last biggest contributor of foot pain you have in your book is foot muscle dysfunction. Would you like to elaborate on that a little bit?
2: Well, you know, uh, you you can talk about, okay, so the, the foot pain book is, one, is the one that, I've departed from the most of all the books that I've written because I've learned so much by owning my clinic and foot, solving foot issues are so much easier than how I presented in my book so uh, you don't have to exercise the foot muscles really what it comes down to is is understanding really it's the calf and soleus right so if you can solve the calf and soleus tightness and that degree of force that's driving into your foot that will solve almost all of your foot pain. And so one of the ways to, if you're in a lot of pain with plantar fasciitis, in my home program, downloadable home program for foot and ankle pain, I have a taping technique that is unique to my approach that will correct the arch uh, of your foot and eliminate a lot of the stresses that are going through that arch until you start to learn how to walk better and solve the reason the arch is collapsing in the first place. Great. So taping is a great bridge while you're in pain to allow everything to calm down and, imp- and while you're improving your function. And then you wean yourself from the tape. And I do that all over the body. I, tape is a big help. It's featured in all, all of my home programs because it gives us a window to see you know, what would my body feel like if everything was working perfectly. And usually, people will say, it feels wonderful. Okay, great. Now we have to get you to do what the tape is doing. And that's what my programs do.
0: Do you, do you use uh, K-Tape?
2: No, I don't. Uh, K-T-Tape is, is too stretchy. So I use K-T-Tape with things that don't need to be controlled well. Maybe okay. if we're trying to guide a movement, but if we're trying, like K-T-Tape will never hold up a shoulder blade, all right? Now, if someone has, uh, if someone has uh, an allergic reaction to the tape, then I'll use KT tape. With apologies, <laughs> Not, nothing right. wrong with KT tape, but for the way the things that I'm trying to control with the way I approach things, KT tape will never hold up a foot arch, because yeah. you've got you know two to five times your body weight compressing through that foot arch. Well, it's too stretchy; it just won't do it. So. I use Leukotape Tape P and Cover Roll Stretch.
0: Gotcha. And, oh, and yeah. those are the
2: ones, yeah, those are the ones that yeah. will, they're like iron, and they will stay yeah, on for a are. week. Yeah. So KT Tape I found useful for things that I want to guide. Leukotape Tape P and Cover Roll Stretch for things I want to control.
1: Okay, we got one last question on foot pain. Can you just give us your thoughts on foot orthosis or arch supports?
2: Yes. Oh, great. Yet again, Mike, another great question. <laughs> so, so what, what, what I have found, uh, you know, have you, I don't know if you guys have taken foot orthotics courses, uh, oh, but even in, in PT school, when they teach us about foot orthotics, all right, they say, oh, they show you all the science behind all the orthotics and everything like this. And then, uh, and then if it doesn't work, then you can start posting here and posting there. I'm just like, well, where did all the science go then? If we have to learn all this science around the shape of the foot and how the sure. foot orthotic should be controlling it, then we shouldn't have to post because we've done the foot orthotic correctly in the first place.
0: Right.
2: So what I've learned in my years is that foot orthotics are based on this idea of subtalar neutral. So the foot orthotic, subtalar neutral is a position of your foot and ankle whereby everything is supposedly aligned perfectly. It's the ideal position. And so foot orthotics are casted in that position. The problem is, is that when you step on the foot orthotics, you're now falling below subtalar neutral. Below the, the ideal. And so what I what I have learned, I've, uh, uh, I've found soul supports. I don't know if you guys have heard of them. Oh, but yeah. soul supports teaches a method to cast above subtalar neutral, so that then the foot falls to subtalar neutral and then back out again. So we're not hanging out in this, in this area below subtalar neutral where damage occurs. We're hanging out above it and going to it and then getting out of there again. All right. And so I, over the, I mean, I think I've been casting for them and they're not paying me uh, for this. But I've been yeah. casting with them for about 15 years. I think I've had one pair of orthotics that someone has returned because they weren't happy That's with unusual.
0: it. That's unusual, really unusual.
2: It's, but, but, and so what I did was, I developed my taping technique based on their casting technique. Because it was so successful that I thought, I've got to learn to tape a foot like this because I don't think all these people need these orthotics. Mm-hmm. And so lo and behold, what I found was when I taped the foot and I fixed the system, 95% of the people who are asking for orthotics when they enter our clinic do not need the orthotics because we right. fixed the system problem. Only the, the only people who need the orthotics in my practice were the people who were very hypermobile, had very loose ligaments, couldn't control their joints worth a squat. Everything was collapsing. You know, even with strengthening, it would collapse. And so those were the people who did best with orthotics.
0: Well, we're going to stop there, Rick. You've been very generous with, with your time. Uh, you want to give your website, your website one more time?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, for my downloadable home programs, go to fixingyoumethod.com and then type in fixingyou, all one word, and you can get a 20% discount. And then uh, if you're a practitioner, you can go to healpatientsfaster.com. And you can learn this systems approach to solving pain. And if you want to look at some of the other stuff I've written or blogs and and all my programs and everything, it's found at rickolderman.com if you just want to peruse everything else that I've got there. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah, this has been
2: fascinating.
1: Yes, we learned a lot about many different subjects and body parts. But they're all connected. I could talk for days.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They are. Yeah.
0: Thank you for joining our program.